0: Welcome to the Mothers on the Frontline podcast and our special series, Between Friends. Hello, this is Tammy. And this is Dion, And this is Angela. We are the founders of Mothers on the Frontline. Children's mental health is a social justice issue, both in how children with mental illness and their families are treated and in how structural violence adversely affects the mental well-being of children. The motherhood of children with mental health conditions has been marginalized and stigmatized in ways that are deeply connected with structural and systemic racism, misogyny, patriarchy, and colonialism. This context silences the lived experiences of mothers, and it degrades our essential knowledge about our children and their needs. This silencing both harms our well-being as mothers, and it prevents our ability to adequately advocate for our children. In this new series, Conversations Between Friends, we will discuss and name what often remains invisible, hidden, or unspoken. Within this intentional space of friendship and care, we will pursue our vision of a world in which mental health is destigmatized, respected, and prioritized as an integral part of the overall health of individuals, families, and communities. Before we begin, please realize that we are three mothers at home with our children with mental health conditions. You might hear children, meltdowns, ticks from Tourette's, and other background noises. This is just the lives we live, so carry on.
1: Hi there, everyone. Um, Today we wanted to have a conversation about defunding the police. And what does that mean? What doesn't it mean? And how does that apply to our communities of children with mental health and disabilities? Um, And really, what does that mean for the presence of police and SROs in our school? And what our concerns are as we see the violence that's in the streets, you know, with the police brutality and how we're seeing that used in schools with chokeholds and seclusion and restraint um, rooms in our schools. Um, I'm going to start with what I thought the very first time I heard the calls to defund the police. Uh, I'm, I'll be honest with you. My very first thought was like a side-eyed glance, and I think that that might be going a little too far. I did not understand what that language meant, the context, the history of it. And uh, in the conversations that I've had here with Tammy and Dion, who have lots of expertise in this area, they've helped clarify for me what that means and what that doesn't mean. Um, I'm going to, you know, turn it over to Tammy and I want her to, um, you know, let's let's get into this discussion about what does it really mean to defund the police?
0: Uh, great. Hi. Um, I mean, I always want to start by saying that it doesn't mean one thing to one. I mean, everyone doesn't agree on what they mean that that phrase to mean. So I, I think that's important to point out. There's a wide spectrum of what people are calling for when they say defund the police. Um, so I think that's important to point out. And I certainly am not going to be speaking for everybody and of everyone's views. But I do want to talk about what many are saying in movement spaces about defunding the police. So I I can talk about that a bit. Um, And why I I think that I give a little bit of background why um, I see this as relevant to children's mental health and how my background intersects with this Um, you know, as a mother of a child with mental illness, I became an advocate for mental health and really worked in Iowa on trying to get some movement on having a children's mental health system in our state. And so in 2015, um, Renee Spey and I uh, put together a coalition of people around the state and wrote a call for action for a children's mental health system. And as we wrote that document and we worked on that, The school-to-prison pipeline was a big piece of that, and seeing how it tied with the school-to-prison pipeline. And so our call for action included information about the school-to-prison pipeline, which I think we have to discuss in relation to this topic today. Um, So that's one background I have. Uh, The other is, um, in addition to being a mother, I'm a college professor, and I've been um, teaching recently, uh, co-teaching a class on the school-to-prison pipeline and talking about some of these issues. So that's where I'm sort of coming from when I talk about this. Um, and so I think there are two issues I'd want to address because I think when we hear defund the police, the other thing we may be hearing is the phrase police abolition,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think those terms are really frightening for a lot of people, particularly a lot of white people. And I think, yeah. um, we'll want to talk about that. And I know I will I will say I will couch this and also um, the term abolitionist teaching is part of this as well. And I, the first time I heard that, I was like, what? We're going to get rid of schools. Um, and that's not <laughs> what saying. Right. So so I think just talking a little bit about that language of defunding and abolitionist and what does that really mean, I think, is helpful. And then recognizing within that there's some variation. But so here, here's what I would say. Um, first of all, when, when we hear the calls, um, in the streets right now defunding the police, this idea is that we have defunded for decades and decades and decades all these programs that have held people up and kept our communities running and safe. We have defunded, um, housing and healthcare and, um, education and all sorts of programs have been defunded for decades while we have moved that money into militarizing the police. Can I, can I and, jump in
2: for a second on that
0: yes. you know me? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
2: Because I, I just want to underscore what you're saying. Um, and, and again, I want to underscore in, in my role as a political scientist <laughs> and who has been studying um, you know social policy. Um, since I started my my career in, in 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 public policy and you know funding priorities in particularly in public spaces, and I, I think that what you're talking about and what you're pinpointing is so important. And it's been in this sort of uh, very um, almost insidious, but you know it's it's such a gradual decline, right? That I think that as a populist, we haven't noticed. That the defunding that you're talking about, if we look in our public spaces, um, rec centers, um, you know, public health cl- clinics, public meeting spaces, right, libraries, um, public libraries that were not only considered for a very long time in social science literature um, and also in urban and regional planning as essential to public and civic life. They were the spaces that brought us together. They were the spaces that allowed us as a community to come from different backgrounds and come into the public square and meet. But they were also considered for a very long time until we made this turn um, starting in the 80s when the war on drugs, quote unquote war on drugs, started to ramp up. They were also considered to be vital aspects of how we kept communities in continuity so that we didn't really need the policing tactics that we have right now. So I just wanted to underscore that, um, that the movement of funding and the closing down of our public spaces, the closing down of the funding of libraries and the places that we meet as a community and safe spaces for kids, safe spaces for people um, to go and, you know, when they're not working and safe spaces in the community have gradually shrunk. And particularly in urban areas, there's almost they're almost non-existent while the presence of the police have increased.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and from the, the perspective of, you know, sort of a, a more lay person, you know, not a professor in education, but the things that I see differently from like when we were growing up and how my children um, are experiencing school, You know, we had full time nurses in the school and we don't have those anymore. And for our children that have complex medical needs that have um, that need to take medication every day, whether it's for a mental health or a physical health problem, there, there aren't those caretakers in the schools anymore. And that's a really big problem. And the money that is being used to police our children could be used to care for our children. And I think this is something that lots of people could be in agreement about um, because we're we're missing those aspects of of community and care and health and, and really providing for children in schools the way that it needs to be. And so that you know that's that's really what jumps out for me as a parent when I'm thinking about you know redistributing the funds from one project to another. And the one other thing I wanted to point out when you know I've been learning for this wor- in this work for the school to prison pipeline, there were some things that really stuck out to me that I was like, oh my gosh! And it's particularly the funding of the per student money that we provide versus how much we spend on a student that gets incarcerated. And it's something like the average spending in this country, we spend about $11,000 a year per student to educate them, but we'll spend up to $80,000 a year to incarcerate them. And Mm -hmm. I think we can all agree that we could really use that money in defunding that and providing it to schools to give things like mental health counselors uh, and, and and other things that are really going to actually help our students and prevent the need for policing um, versus spending so much money to keep them locked up.
0: Yeah, no. So basically, this idea of defunding the police is precisely that to put the funding into care, mm-hmm. into caring for our people. Care, not cuffs. Right. Is yeah. is. is One of the mantras that's going around. And I think it's important to understand that that history and and another element of that history that particularly affects our constituency, right, in terms of um, children's mental health and mental health in general, is what happened In the 60s and 70s is this deinstitutionalization, right, of um, the mental health institutions were closed with the promise that there were going to be community supports. And those community supports were never fully put in place. But ever since that time, they have constantly been defunded. And so now you have people with in the community with mental health conditions who are not getting the community support that they should be getting. And so what we have done, as you have mentioned, is we've put police and teachers in charge yeah. of policing our children with mental health conditions who don't have the training mm. and the support they need to do that. And and it's not appropriate for the police to be trying to deliver mental health care. And so part of this defunding idea is precisely, and and when you hear it go to the further Part of the spectrum when people talk about police abolition, what they're talking about is we need to re-envision our institutional structures so that when we think of public safety, we're not thinking that people with guns need to go in and do mental health care. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, right. so we can re-envision what the institutions could be. So, for example, and then I'll throw it back to, to you guys as well, but, but, um, for example, with, um, Instead of having police respond to mental health crises, we could have crisis teams of medical, right? Medically, mental health trained medical people come in to deescalate the situation, right? As opposed to having police come in with, with training and how to, how to stop with force, right? And so that's really what an example of what they're talking about. I, I
2: I think that yeah. oh I'm sorry go ahead
0: No no go ahead well I we should say we're all in different locations so we can't see each no, other so we yeah. might talk <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. We're all safer
2: at home Go ahead still, <laughs> recording from home um but but you know in in terms of the diversion of funds and the types of funds that are, have been diverted into policing in particular and in particular, in our schools. Right. So it, it affects children with um, mental health challenges. It affects children with emerging challenges. And it's, it's an oxymoronic kind of discussion that we're having right now around children's mental health. When we're talking about ACEs. Right. And we we will talk a lot about ACEs on this program. Right. Um and adverse childhood experiences and doctors are supposed to, to identify children with ACEs. Teachers have been enlisted to identify children with ACEs. And one of the things that we know um, about a child with a high level of adverse childhood experiences is that then it has not only an impact on how they learn, it has an impact on their health, it has an impact on their mental health, but it's quite obvious that that means that that child will also need more health care, right? That child will need counselors, that child will need a complement of nurses and, and, and teachers all working together, right? And that does not include the needing of police. Cause right now we have roughly as this is the last time we collected this data um, at the U.S. Department of Education, this is 1.9 million students attend a school that has a police officer in it, but does not have a health care, a complement of health care, meaning a school nurse, mental health providers, psychologists, social workers, and all of these things that, that the literature not only says that students need, but Especially right now, we can't forget that we are in the middle of a pandemic and we are trying to figure out, and particularly mm-hmm. schools are trying to figure out how we are going to go about the necessary task of bringing our children back to school or the necessary task of bringing our children back into the unit of teaching, right? And that means that we actually are going to need more health care, <laughs> workers, nurses, to take temperatures, nurses, to, to be the resource at school to kind of, to monitor with respect to the vi- um, virus and illness, mental health providers, because all of our kids, um, with or without mental health challenges, our kids are now going through what we call a social trauma, right? So this is traumatic and right. it's the, the trauma is happening and it will play out in different ways. But we can anticipate that it will play out in various behaviors and different behaviors of our children in school. And what they're going to need, again, and this is why we're talking about care, they need care. And they're going to need care of an entire team of people who can work with parents, not policing.
0: That's right.
1: I was going to say, one of the things that we've talked about, and, and I'm hoping, you know, that Tammy, this is what you'll, uh, you know, bring some of your experience in and and why we kind of get really heated in our in our feelings about uh, the police presence in school is because our children, whether it's a physical disability, uh, behavioral, learning, mental, um, or any of the other sort of things that make them a higher target for discipline. Um, and, and that particularly applies to you if, you, if, if you're a, a child that has multiple of these. If you are uh, a black child who has a, a physical or mental or intellectual disability. And or you happen to be an LGBTQ student, your chances of being targeted for discipline and having contact with the police is really, really super high. And, and you know that the and we all know that there's been the use of chokeholds in schools and seclusion rooms and I as a parent as I'm super worried about what's going to happen as Dion was talking about with all of our kids are going to come back they've all experienced this social trauma but you know and and our kids especially it's even harder for them what it's going to be like and in this environment where we're seeing so much more violence from the police i'm worried and you know i would like you to you know talk about that a little bit Tiara.
0: yeah yeah so i always want to say um first of all the violence from the police has been pretty consistent it's just getting caught on camera, yeah, <laughs> yeah <yes, laughs> so, yeah and getting yes. attention which is good that it's getting attention um but the violence um uh against children in schools has been going on for a long time, too. So I want to just say one thing in the context of COVID-19. I've been hearing a lot of discussion about, well, this is scary because all the kids at home, they must be being abused more because there's less um, mandatory reporters. I'm not disputing that may be happening, but what... What I'm hearing in disability communities is, well, the good thing we know is our children aren't aren't in isolation rooms right now. We know they're not being abused in schools, which they are across the country when school's in session. And we don't talk about that. And so I know my son has been in seclusion rooms. And if, if I did at home what the schools have done to my son, I would have been arrested for child abuse over and over again. So I just... Think we need to start with that, and we won't be able to talk about all the facets of the school-to-prison pipeline in this episode, but we will be talking yeah. about it on the series. <laughs> um, we're gonna, we're sort of focusing on police right now, and so what a lot of people don't quite understand is that we have police in our schools. Or off, they go by lots of different names. Sometimes they're called school resource officers. Sometimes, I mean, the euphemisms are are really hilarious because they really lead parents to not know they have police in the schools. And when their studies show over and over when police are in the schools, black and brown children and children with disabilities, um, particularly uh, African-American children and particularly indigenous children, particularly children with mental health conditions and developmental disorders um, are disproportionately targeted. Special ed children are disproportionately targeted. and end up being arrested in school for status offenses, for things like rolling their eyes, uh, talking back, refusing to get out of their seat, things we're like too that. Too
1: slow. And
0: ah. too slow. All these kind of things that used to be, if the police aren't in the school, would be things that the teachers would deal with, now become something the police officer is dealing with. Okay. So that's a problem. And the same mentality that uh, causes the further militarization of the police is the same mentality that's causing the hardening of our schools and why people are arguing for SROs. So I'm just going to give this piece from my personal uh, activism experience here on the ground and, and then open it up to you guys again. But where I live in Iowa City, we have been fighting against getting SROs in our schools for a long time, and it seems like it just keeps coming up, and then we have to keep fighting it again. And there was a whole committee that was, you know, studying it and recommended it. It was bizarre because it's like, what were they reading? Um, and when they did come to bring the recommendations forward, the community met them to 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 go through it. Right. So at a school board meeting, they actually argued, well, it would be good to have SROs in the schools because they can do some counseling work and teaching work. And then the question was asked, Mm -hmm. are they going to get any education in counseling or teaching? Are they getting an education degree? Is that no? Well, then why wouldn't we hire counselors and teachers to do that? In a situation where we have defunded We do not have anywhere near enough school counselors, as Angela was just saying, like school nurses. Mm -hmm. We don't have that where we don't have enough teachers and special ed teachers. Why would we put people, police with with guns often in our schools to do that? Why? That is just ridiculous. It
2: it it, the 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 interesting thing in what I was talking about in this little trickle of of ramp up. Right. is that the, the, the big explosion of schools and the argument for SROs and schools and the entryway. And, and let's be honest that this is also a byproduct of very focused lobbying, right? Uh, on the part of a lot of different organizations, um, and groups to actually increase police presence in school and the moments things like Parkland, when the Parkland shooting happened and also Newtown, right? This is where we see the 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 um, explosions, right? Of of police presence, not only in schools, but the call for police presence, and then the call for budgeting priorities, and um, public policy. We talk about things, and, and to do a reach back in talking about defunding police. I I think that sometimes I I want to kind of rush in, and I know I've explained this with my mom. If we think about it not as defunding, but re Prioritizing our budgets, right? And so, in each of these moments of of very tragic moments of school shootings, we see communities call, even communities that are not necessarily um, where the shootings have happened, like Iowa was not, is not Parkland, but we see this great call for more police presence in school. So, with the assumption that that is a preventative measure for a school shooting. And it's important to note that even in Parkland, where a greater police presence and, it, um, occurred after that school shooting, there, the parents in Parkland are now calling for the police and SROs to be pulled out of their schools. Because it's exactly what we're talking about in terms of funding priorities and, and not just having healthcare and nurses in the schools. It is everything from our and music education and all the things that are, are truly therapeutic and that we know and we literally have data that says all of these types of programs, civic education programs in the school, actually are things that enhance not only um, an enriched student experience, but they actually do have an effect on on um, lessening and, and mitigating crime in the community. right? Um, And I think it's important that that we we note that. In addition to the fact, and this is the question that I have, is well, not a question, but one of the things I think we assume when we talk about SROs, and especially the way that policing in schools are presented as parent to us as parents. And now it's like for me speaking as a parent, police are often presented as an extra space for mentoring and guidance in the schools. And what gets cleansed is that police are police and that they are using policing tactics. The same policing tactics that have brought people to the streets to protest right now are being used in our schools. Chokeholds, um, like you talked about, Tammy, seclusion and restraint and violent takedowns, Of children as young as seven years old are being violently taken down um, by police officers, put in handcuffs and removed from schools. Um, So if you I don't know. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, I know my own experience um, when my son was younger and he was having a mental health crisis and the school did call the police. And the police officer only escalated everything, made very rude comments while my son was not doing well, and only made the situation worse, did not bring any value to the situation. And and the teachers later said that was a big mistake. That person just made everything worse. I'm like, well, what would you expect? And, you know, he was little. There was no danger to anybody. It was just there. There again, this kind of mentality that we have of, well, you call the police because they're going to help us, right? When what we really should have is things in place to deal with serious mental illness, right? Like that, if you're going to, you know, not have a structure for children with severe mental illness, and you want them in the classroom, then you need to have something set up for them when, when there's a problem and there's a crisis, and they did it. And so that's their first response. And so I think that's what we need to think about is this idea of we need to think about new structures that are actually going to be for public safety. Can we have mental health response teams, mm-hmm. right, for instance, as opposed a- people with guns showing up. That would be an example of the creativity that we need. And, and we've seen those things work. But in our schools, we, um, a, as you both mentioned, have seen police harming our children, traumatizing our children, and disrupting the learning environment.
2: Yeah, I don't know how a child who witnesses their classmates um, being, cho- you know, being put in a choke hole, like what happened in Arkansas just in, I think it was February, right? Camden, Arkansas, where a high school student was put in a choke hole um, and and the SRO was choked him out. And this was caught on camera and it was caught on video and the police officer was suspended. But we talk about the, the child, but the trauma the ripple effect of the trauma on all the children around, right? It, 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 it is to me a very stark example, um, of a foreseeable consequence, right? So the goal for some reason to having SROs in school is to help facilitate learning in the schools. But this is clear that this is the opposite. This is not facilitate learning. And not only does it inhibit learning, but it teaches our children that school is a place of danger for them, right? It teaches them that they cannot trust the environment. They can't trust the institution. And so an institution that we spend so much time from the time that, you know, we drop our kids off for kindergarten, right? Um Trying to teach them that they need to not only respect the institution, they need to respect the teachers, but the institution is there to help them. The education is a good thing, right? And this is a thing that's going to make them whole, becomes the site for many children of the greatest harm.
1: And I think this is an important place also where we kind of talk about the, the difference in how um, white and minority students and families experience policing because I, I can hear it now and the discussions that I've had with friends and other people in the community, particularly in predominantly white communities, is that that's not what they experience. And they see the police as you know, officer friendly and you know it, you know uh, providing this important protection and in though for those people and in those spaces, that is very much what they experience and they're not lying when they're telling us this is what they think and they feel and they've experienced the disconnect in what we see going on in the protests and what's happening in our schools again is that there is privilege and protection for some people and control and violence for others and it's very much around these sort of these lines of division with you know, ability, you know, sort of like the ableism and, um, you know, skin color and other things that might be considered, uh, discriminatory. Um, and I think that it's really important that we, we discuss those, um, those differences and why you get the pushback from other people sincerely because their kids are being protected. Um, and I don't know what the answer is to like how how we fix that or how we bridge that other than continuing to sort of have these discussions. And, um, you know, it it's tragic what so many kids are experiencing. And, and we have to also put the priority on the people who are being harmed, not just on the people who are being helped.
0: Yeah, I think there are two issues here. I mean, one is to understand what best gets mm-hmm. us the result of classroom safety. Yeah. That's one issue. And, and study after study shows that trying to force compliance as opposed mm-hmm. to care for yeah. children's education and health and wellness um the latter is what is most effective over and over we see that 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 ch- the the behavior ironically is often caused by the very procedures that are attempting to squash the behavior right so there there's a right. issue of effectiveness and that again we don't have enough time to talk about that today um but we certainly will uh, throughout the series but then there's this other issue That And I feel I hear what you're saying, because I also am in these white communities. And I I know even in myself, how I react when I hear some of these phrases. It's like, wait a minute. That sounds like, oh, I don't know. Um, And yeah, but I also think and this is what's hard for us as white people that we have to do. We have to step back and deconstruct the narratives That we so readily run to. In fact, I think the biggest work we all anti-racist work we all need to do is really examine what are the narratives that Mm -hmm. are always on the tip of our tongues.
1: Yeah.
0: And where did they come from? What's their history? Because if I think of just Iowa's situation, right? So um, the last few days, several of us have been working on a bill that um, is is going to pass. Right. Um, And it's very frustrating because so long we've been trying to get um, some traction on funding a children's mental health system on a full continuum of care, which we just don't have in the state, and we can't get traction on actual funding it, right? And yet, it's really easy to get the legislators and the public behind things that they see are about school safety, right? When And they'll often mask and act, act like one is the other when it's not. So- It was not hard at all to get all the legislators to say, we need a classroom management bill. And if you look at the media that went behind the the motivation for that legislation, teachers and parents being recorded dog whistling, and they didn't even, I don't even know if they knew if they knew what they were saying. They were talking about how dangerous the urban schools had become, and they need to move to the suburbs. That is race racial code for white flight. Okay, that is. That is dog whistling. And and I don't think people recognize sometimes the fear mongering about how Mm -hmm. dangerous kids are and how dangerous people from that neighborhood are is really drenched in white supremacy. And I don't think we're always aware or honest with ourselves about where some of those impulses come from. Right. Absolutely. So seeing these children, especially children, who have disabilities, right? As well, we need to do something because they're disrupting the classes. Well, the problem isn't that these children are bad children. The problem is our schools are not resourced and trained to support them. They're not getting yes. the care they need. Our special needs kids who are not getting the care they need, who are needing room clears and things like that, it's because we have not given them a structure. And uh, resources that work for their needs. But instead, we just want to throw in police and think that's going to fix it. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, 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 not at all. I know we're all really passionate about these, these issues. And I think, again, I, I, I want to like go back to, um, you know, the, the, the common thread here with funding or defunding, prioritizing, how, however you want, you want to put this. We have created budgets that place the highest value on things like the military and the police. And we, you know, we say we want things for our children, right? We want things for our communities. We want people to be healthy and, and safe and for our kids to have these great educations. But our budget very, very rarely ever reflect that. And we take more and more away from our schools and from our children and expect teachers in in particular to to do more and more with less and less. And then we're surprised when there are things going on in the schools that we didn't have to deal with growing up. And that's because we have deliberately removed all of those like safeguards and structures and supports that allowed us to have a very different childhood than what our what our kids are having right now. We didn't have cops in schools. We had nurses in schools. We had art, we had music, we had we had all of these things that were just a normal part of going to public school. And I think we need to return to those values. That that the thing that we constantly hear about oh, you know, I want I want to go back to whatever time, usually, you know, some romanticized version of our childhoods, but we really did have different experiences than our kids. And if that's what we really want, we need to have our budgets reflect our values. And that means letting the police do the things that they're actually good at because they're not good at taking care of mental health crises. They're not good at, um, being in our schools, um, and, and let teachers and the people who are good at, at creating health and safety within these environments do their, do their work. So we then again have the ripple effect of not needing more police or uh, a prison-like environment in our schools in order to, quote unquote, I, I, keep our kids I agree safe. with all of that.
2: And, um, but I, I, I wanna highlight a couple of things that both you and and Tammy pointed out with regard to not only this sort of change in having police officers in the school, um, because I mean I do remember I don't we didn't have a designated school resource officer. Um, but where I went to school up until we moved to, to, uh, suburban Indiana, I went to school in North Philadelphia. We did have police presence sort of around the school. Um, and, and we were aware yeah. and of, of, you know, different types of, of, quote-unquote incidents. So I remember my mom talking about, you know, that's the school and that's the school that has a little bit more incidents. And they had a heightened police presence. So the police presence and the police being in the school and being around the school, I think is also part and parcel of where you live. And we know that uh, Black and Brown communities are yeah. over-policed and Black and Brown students are over-policed. But I think one of the things that we really have to deal with and this goes to what you were talking about, Tammy, with the narrative. Right. Because public policy runs on narratives. We think it runs on statistics. It does not. It runs on narratives. Um And part of the narrative of bad children. Right. And bad schools um, really mm-hmm. had a lot to do with fueling more and bad neighborhoods, fueling more police. And the narrative of where the kids were coming from right and who the kids were right so kids who were being bused when i then moved to indiana and i moved to indiana at the height of when they were doing some desegregation um and busing, that narrative resurfaced. Now you're going to take kids from bad neighborhoods and put them in our schools. And at the root of that, and I'm just going to Mm. be very honest, Mm -hmm. at the root of a lot of the policing and the policing of behaviors is not only an antipathy towards people with physical disabilities, but there's a lot of anti-Black and anti-indigeneity behaviors that are embedded in the narratives about why and where we need extra policing and why and where we need extra policing at particular schools, which has a lot to do with why when those kids are in schools, because Iowa, I mean, I used to live in Iowa. Many people who are listening don't know that, but Iowa has a smidgen. It's such a tiny minority of black and brown folk and the overall population. But when you look at the statistics, and Tammy, you can speak more about this, when you look at who's policed in school, who's disciplined, and whose behavior is disciplined, it's overwhelmingly black and brown kids and kids with disabilities. And what we have done effectively is we've criminalized children's behavior. We've turned what was, for some kids, for white kids, ordinary types of behavior anything from vocalizations to humming to you know kids just being kids and for black and brown students we have Mm -hmm. made them criminal we have criminalized the childhood of many of our kids in school and as a black parent it's very difficult for me and it has been we always run this kind of um in my household, we're always doing a calculus when and we've moved a lot with our kids about exactly what the balance is and where we put our kids because we don't want our kids in overwhelmingly white schools because then they're more police. My kids in Iowa had so much their experiences with teachers and their experiences with just regular childhood being disciplined for things that normal kids would do were much more heightened. In more white spaces. And the narrative that white schools are better schools, that black and brown kids coming into those schools are what drives the school quality down, has a lot to do with what feeds into this narrative of then now we need discipline.
0: That's right. And that goes back to the beginning of the country about the policing of black and brown bodies and and, in schools as well. And again, that goes beyond what we can talk about here. But if you look at the history of schools when they for, public schools first started in the U.S. and so forth, if you look at the forced schooling of indigenous children, right, to, as they would say, you know, um, kill the Indian, save the man. I mean, that's what they were doing. They were basically, you know, stealing children and forcing them to be schooled in a certain way and deeply disciplined if they spoke their language practice their culture and so on. So there's a long history also of this kind of policing of a kind of compliance to certain white norms that that goes way into our history. So I, that does need to be mentioned because mm-hmm. we, we can romanticize our childhood experiences. But if you go all the way back, it, it, again, it depends like who you are, where.
1: <laughs> well, Sorry, I just well, want yeah, to point it- that up. No, no, and that's okay. I mean, and we did eventually have school resource officers, but it was in high school. It wasn't in grade school. I don't remember it in middle school, maybe, and I have, you know, only some experience it with it when we, you know, when I went to high school. And then, you know, the things that Dion was talking about um with the the racism that goes into, you know, who's in good schools and who's in bad schools, that is not only just sort of things we talk about, but it's a deliberate social structure, right? And and we and I know we talk about this all the time in our conversations that it goes back to redlining and how schools were funded and what schools were deb- deliberately marked out with that big red marker and neighborhoods where federal, state, and local money didn't go and we know how our schools are funded, and that's by the tax base, and your tax base goes up according to uh, the desirability of your neighborhood and how good the schools are. So it's this constant reinforcing system that then allows people to be like, to be fearful of something that has been created to be exactly as it is, and then we blame the people in those communities for having to deal with the effects of poverty, and I think that, it's, it's not okay. That is perfect, so, and, and the, you know, one of the things because
2: <laughs> I know we're running out of time. But when when I teach about policing and I teach about policy and and budgetary priorities, um, budgets have a lot to do with what we not only prioritize, but in the narrative how the narrative plays out in terms of what how we socially construct um different groups and um you know, there's a there's two political scientists, um, Ann Snyder and Helen Ingram, who wrote a very influential book about the social construction of target populations. So how we construct the target population has a lot to do with how we believe and what we think about them. And if we construct a target population as deviant and we construct that target population as um, as criminal, then the results, the resulting policies and then what results out of that you can see. And that is largely what we are doing in our schools, We're particularly with with black and brown kids. There, We are constructing them. We construct them as deviant. We construct them as poor children from broken homes who need policing. And one of the things that I would just encourage when we talk about anti-racist work and changing the narrative is to not think that where we are now is a result of some sort of uncontrollable, naturalistic, organic process. And, well, what are you going to do? We have constructed ourselves mm. in this moment. And anything that we have constructed, and policing is constructed, crime and what is criminalized is constructed. Anything that we construct as human beings, we can deconstruct, and we can change, and we can do it differently.
1: Absolutely. And and I think that's a really great place for us to you know, close up today.
0: Thank you for listening to Mothers on the Frontline, copyrighted in 2020. The music is Old English, written and performed by Flame Emoji. For more podcasts related to children's mental health justice, go to mothersonthefrontline.com or subscribe to Mothers on the Frontline on iTunes, Android, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, please make a tax-deductible donation on our website.